on race and genomics uh, and multiculturalism in Latin, in Latin America, specifically Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico. So the kind of the overall context for this research is uh, the work that's been going on for the last few decades on human genetic diversity research using uh, recent genomic technologies of what they call high, three, high throughput sequencing, very rapid genomic sequencing that new technologies have allowed. So the kind of thing I'm talking about, which you may have heard of, is perhaps uh, the Human Genome Diversity Project, the HapMap Project, the Thousand Genomes Project, the Genographic Project. All these are global projects seeking to map human genetic diversity. Why do they do it? Uh, the key reason is health. The idea is to try and localise specific genetic variants that underlie um, what are sometimes called complex disorders, like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, which probably have some kind of genetic component, but it's pretty unclear what they are, and they also have uh, very complex social components. But this mapping of genetic diversity is really about trying to find out what the genetics of those kinds of diseases are. Uh, it's also uh, linked into forensics and the impro uh, improving technologies for uh, identifying um, bodies um, in mass graves, the victims of massacres or uh, uh, crimes and so on, linking DNA samples from crime scenes to suspects and so forth. Uh, it's also um, part of trying to map the peopling of the world, how the human race, the human species developed and expanded across the world and became differentiated over time. And lastly, it's, uh, there's also a kind of commercial, rec what's sometimes called recreational genomics, which is people seeking um, information about their own per personal ancestry and where in the world uh, their ancestors came from. Uh, so, you know, you see these things, uh, DNA print or 23andMe, where you can take a swab from the inside of your cheek and send it off in the post, and they will send you back kind of maps and certificates about who your ancestors are and whether you're related to Genghis Khan or, or somebody else like that. Um, now, one of the issues that emerges in this kind of mapping of human diversity is the concept of race and whether or not uh, genomics, this kind of very, very detailed mapping of human diversity, finally dispenses with the old uh, notions of race, biological notions of race, which social scientists are confident were dispensed with many years ago. But in fact, biological scientists and geneticists have been less sure about that. Uh, even since the Second World War, or whether um, genomics actually reinforces and gives more evidence that biological races might exist. And there's still a lot of debate about that um, within genomics itself. Now, a lot of that debate is taking place within the USA, uh, and to some extent Europe as well, um, but there's rather little been done on Latin America, which is interesting because, you know, in a context where these nations are built on the idea of race mixture, uh, it could be interesting to see how notions of race figure in um, Latin American genomics. But I should say straight away, as a, you know, sort of a, a nod towards the theme of this conference, that uh, genomics is a global endeavor. So a lot of the Latin American genomicists uh, publish in English, they publish in US-based journals, they're part of a kind of international or global endeavor to, uh, to map human genetic diversity. So you can't really draw strict boundaries around these kinds of, uh, around this kind of science, regional boundaries around this kind of science. Uh, now, in our project, what we were aiming to do was to investigate certain 
what we call natural cultural categories like race, nation, ethnicity, and in fact gender, as it turned out. That is to say, uh, categories that play on nation, uh, notions of both nature and culture, history and biology, uh, and so on. And how these categories entered into scientific practice uh, and how scientific practice then transformed them or reproduced them or engaged with them in some way. Now, I just should say that it was a big project with very, lots of different researchers. And the people who actually did the research were these researchers here. And there were some co sort of senior co-applicants, these guys here, and then a bunch of local research assistants who were also involved in the project. So what I'm presenting is the results of their research, really. I was the director of the project, but they were the ones collecting the data. So in Colombia, Mafe Maria Fernanda Olarte and Ernesto Schwartz Marin worked in various different laboratories. Um, Ernesto also worked in the, the Fiscalia and the Police uh, Forensic Investigations Department. In Mexico, Vivet worked mainly in INMEGEN, Instituto Nacional de Medicina Genomica, uh, which had this big project uh, which, had, which had finished by the time she started, but this had been their flag, flagship project, which is the Mapa del Genoma de los Mexicanos which is a mapping of Mexican genomic diversity. Um, and she also did work with some focus groups and so on. And then in Brazil, Michael Kent worked with various, or on, and with various geneticists, uh, a very well-known one called Sergio Pena, who's a kind of public intellectual who's made lots of public interventions in debates, policy debates in, in, in Brazil. Uh, Maria Cachira, Bortolini as well, and others, and also working with some black activists. Sergio Pena was the author, the lead author of this quite well-known sort of popular science article called uh, Retrato Molecular do Brasil, the Molecular Portrait of Brazil, uh, which I will refer to later. Okay, so uh, all these nations, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, are, define themselves in different kinds of ways as mestizo nations, built on mixture. And they all share some long-standing concerns. They share a concern with how to define sameness and difference, how to deal with diversity and unity within their own nations, Okay, we're all mestizos, but you know, also we have black populations, indigenous populations, white populations. How do we, how do we talk about that difference? How do we phrase it in, in terms of, uh, of national identity? And that obviously has come to the fore um, in recent multiculturalist policy initiatives and legislation and debates. All of them have a history of uh, eugenic um, movements, as do most Latin American countries. Um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, but in Latin America, often going through into the 1930s, 40s, even, even up to the 1950s, which was about you know, the health of the nation, how to improve the health of the nation through a number of different kinds of interventions, both um, aimed at controlling marital practices and at improving social hygiene in the nation as a whole, uh, and so forth. Uh, and as I say, a lot of the genomics is about health, is fundamentally about health. Uh, linked to that, there's uh, histories in each country of a, a physical anthropology of diversity, of measuring that diversity, of taking blood samples, of measure anthropo anthropometry, measuring people's bodies, measuring skin color, measuring eye color, uh, measuring nose shapes, all these kinds of things has been going on for a long time it, it, with an interest in defining that diversity. And all countries have uh, a kind of ambivalent relationship with the concept of race. In some countries, especially in the 1920s and 30s, it was a concept that you could use quite openly. 
already by then, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, there was a challenge to the notion of race, especially as it was being deployed in North America and Europe, uh, saying that that didn't apply to Latin America because they were mixed countries. Um, a denial of racism in many places in relation often to the USA, saying you know, we're not racist like the USA is racist, uh, was a very common trope for Brazil and Mexico and so on. Um, and especially after the Second World War, in places like Mexico, race is pushed very much to the side. You don't talk in those terms anymore. You talk about language or you talk about ethnicity. Uh, you don't talk about race and racism is supposed not to exist, etc. Whereas in Brazil, race has a much more sort of public institutional life, sometimes just under the label colour, but since the 1990s also uh, very explicitly under the label of, of race uh, and, and racial equality. Um, and again, as I say, with recent multiculturalism, these kinds of uh, the presence of race has become a little more palpable in, especially in Brazil, also in Colombia to a lesser, lesser extent in Mexico. So one of the issues is, well, okay, talking about Latin America now, does Latin American genomics simply reproduce familiar categories of race of negros, blancos, mestizos, uh, morenos, pardos, indígenas, whatever? Um, which is what a lot of people say genomics does in, you know, in general in the North, uh, that it reproduces these existing categories. But also, does it change those existing categories? Does it, with its new technologies and new kinds of information, does it, uh, through a process of co-production, of mutual constitution of society and science, does it actually end up changing those categories as it goes along? So the inquiry is into the kind of practices of visibilization and enunciation that genomics has. How does it see race or diversity? How does it, what statements does it make about that diversity? What kinds of regimes of truth does it produce? How can we know what that diversity is uh, in an authentic and verifiable way? And how does it shape processes of knowing within science, but also in the, in the wider uh, public sphere? So that's what we're interested in. Now, in this, one of the things that I'm interested in here is what Deleuze, is a move that uh, Gilles Deleuze, the philosopher Gilles Deleuze, talks about uh, from a societies of discipline, which is he associates with a kind of Foucauldian notion of prisons and army barracks and um, industrial factories where people are strongly controlled and shut in, if you like, you know, asylums and so forth, to what he calls societies of control where those kinds of direct impositions of, 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 of spatial authority are, uh, are taken over more by constant surveillance and measurement of what people do, but in a much more kind of hands-off way. So rather than shutting people into prisons, you check all the time where they're going and what they're doing, right, through kind of GPS technology or... Um, or supermarkets, loyalty cards, you can tell you know, what they bought, when they bought it, um, and that information is shared across different databases, insurance companies, and they target you and they target different kinds of people for uh, marketing purposes or for control purposes. When you cross a, board, a border, you know, all your biometric data is, transfer, is, is stored, etc., etc. This is what he meant by societies of control. And it creates a society in which, rather than fixity and pinning people down, there's constant movement, constant modulation. Uh, you have to watch all the time and trace people's movements rather than trying to keep them in one place. Um, and this has been linked to a kind of what, what one can call a molecular biopolitics, where you can also trace people's 
molecular life, if you like. You can, you can do this kind of society of control at a molecular level because you can, um, you can find out about the detail, detailed information about people's genomes using these new genomic technologies. So the images here are of constant movement, constant modulation. Um, so the question is, that I'm going to look at, to what extent does genomics, Latin American genomics, fix race, creates a kind of Foucauldian grid of control and intelligibility where things are, 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 are boxed in and pinned down, and to what extent does genomics in Latin America unfix race and create this sort of sense of modulation, of movement, of uncertainty, of a certain a sense of freedom, although it might be a very conditional sort of freedom. So that's what I'm going to look at. And the first thing I'll do then is try and look at ways in which I think genomics does fix race, does pin things down and uh, control them in a very disciplinary sort of way. So the first thing I'm going to look at is, is the kind of the way in which the gen geneticists visualise their information in their technical papers, but also in some more... Um, public sort of uh, uh, public um, representations. So here are some examples. Here's um, work done by, uh, from the uh, Escuela Nacional de Antropología e Historia in Mexico. This is a very typical sort of representation. So what you have is the states of Mexico, you have a sample, a population sample from different states, and then each population sample is analysed in terms of its genetic ancestry. So this is... Uh, in, the, the amount of ancestry from this population that has indigenous origins, that is American indigenous, European and African. So that's a very typical way, and I won't go into the reasons why they want to do this. This is all to do with medical genomics, um, but this is a very typical way of, uh, that they represent diversity in the nation. Here's a, a different example from Mexico. This was from the Inmejen uh, Institute and in their mapping of the Mexican genome. What are we looking at here? The, 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 the diversity is usually uh, reckoned in relation to sort of um, reference populations. So here, uh, one reference population is a sample of people from um, Ibadan in Africa. Okay, so these are international reference samples. This represents African ancestry in the Latin American context. So this is just a sample taken from some Yoruba people in, um, in Nigeria. This here is um, another international reference sample of people uh, from Tokyo and Beijing, which represents uh, East Asian ancestry. Up here in yellow is people uh, of northwestern European descent who happen to live in Utah in the USA. And down here, so these are international ones. They come from what's called the HAP map, which is a big international database. Here is one that was taken for, especially for the Mexican um, uh, study, which was a Zapotec community in southern Mexico. And then all the ones in the middle, all these different um, dots and blots in the middle, are what are called Mexican mestizos. So they're ordinary people recruited, usually in public universities, uh, in sort of sampling trips uh, during the project, during the, the Inmejen project, and from the different states, Guerrero, Sonora, uh, Guanajuato, and so on. Uh, so what you see there is that the... Um, the mestizos are spread between the, you know, the sort of indigenous pole and the, um, the European pole. I'll come back to what is some of the, the significance of some of this in a minute. I just want to get across the kind of the way that the geneticists are representing their data. 
This is the same data, but organized in a kind of bar chart. So here you have your <coughs> European ancestry. This is the East Asian ancestry. This is the Yoruba and African ancestry. This is the Zapotec indigenous ancestry. Then these are the different states of, uh, of Mexico and their various proportions of each ancestry. And then up here, this is each individual person. Each of these tiny little lines represents an actual individual and their ancestral proportions. This is from Brazil, by a paper by Sergio Pena. So here you see these are samples from different regions of Brazil, north, northeast, southeast, and south. And here, Europe, this represents European ancestry, African ancestry, American ancestry, uh, Amerindian ancestry. And you can see how they are related to each other and to these polar points. So what comes out very strongly from that is this the fixing of these foundational categories, Africans, Europeans, and Amerindians, appear as these very distinct, biologically, genetically distinct populations. Now, for the geneticists, these are not races. These are ancestral populations. They are specific populations taken from places in the world who are used to represent ancestry, right? So specific uh, markers that are more common in Africa than they are in Europe are used to... Uh, measure the amount of African ancestry in mestizo, Mexican, or Brazilian populations. From the point of view of the non-specialist, those categories look pretty much like race. They're very familiar categories, African, black, European, white, Amerindian, red, or something like that. Um, and then a Asian, which is actually they don't refer to very much, um, uh, is you know, yellow in the kind of old scheme of racial classifications. So the geneticists are talking about ancestral populations, not races, but to the, uh, the casual observer, they look quite like familiar categories of race. And these categories are fixed in space and time. So they're fixed in Africa, you know, the Yoruba sample, they're fixed in Utah, and they are fixed in time, so that when you take a Sapotec community now... What you're using it for is to represent indigenous ancestry 500 years ago, right? Ignoring the 500 years of colonization, intermixture, etc., etc., that has happened in the meantime. So you're effectively locating your contemporary Sapotec population somehow back in the past, saying, okay, we can use them as a representative of what was happening 500 years ago. When they do this kind of sampling, it is significant that the geneticists don't take it. They go to why they, when they want to get Amerindian ancestry, what do they do? They go to an indigenous community. How do they know it's indigenous? Because people speak indigenous languages there, because they dress like indigenous people, because it's on the map of the Mexican you know, um, Indigenous Institute as being an indigenous location and so on. So it's defined in cultural terms. That's how they know it's, 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 it's indigenous. But they don't choose anybody from that Sapotec community. They only choose people whose grandparents were also born and spoke Sapotec, right? So it's not just anybody. What they want is a pure Sapotec person, someone who hasn't been in some way contaminated by uh, a mixture from uh, different migrations and so on. So there's quite a strong process of purification going on here, right? Because they specifically want something that looks as Amerindian as possible, that's not mixed with other things. So that's why they're doing that. But it creates that sense, that sense of purity. And if they, in their sample, they find 
particular individuals who don't look Amerindian enough, then they take them out of the sample because that's just going to confuse matters and create sort of t statistical noise. So they get rid of them and keep a very uh, pure sample of, of Zapotecs. And then the third thing, the third fourth thing that they do is create a kind of overlap, a strong overlap between social categories and genetic profiles. So as I said, they define their samples using sociological, cultural, or uh, physical appearance. They say, okay, if we want black people in Salvador, how do we know they're black? Well, they look black, so that'll do. Uh, or they measure their skin colour or something like that. Um, or if they want mestizos, how do they know they're mestizos? Well, they don't. They just go to a public university in a big city in, in Mexico and say, we need, you know, we need people to give us blood. And they will assume that all those people are mestizos because they're urban, they're going to university, and so forth. Um, so there's a strong sense in which they create, you, def you define your, your samples in sociological terms and cultural terms, and then you produce a genetic profile of that sample and say, okay, that's what this, these people look like in genetic terms. So it's almost, you know, inevitably you create a kind of overlap between a social category and a genetic definition. Um, and this was quite obvious in the Mexican case where they separated out mestizos and indigenous. As I said before, you know, if they took an, um, an indigenous sample and they found people who looked genetically quite like the mestizos, then they'd you know, take them out of the sample because they created noise. So there was, and even though they knew that all indigenous uh, communities in Mexico are mixed, you know, after 500 years, and this has been known for many, many years, they nevertheless reproduce that sense of, well, here are the indigenous people and here are the mestizos, and they are different categories of people, and they are biologically different, and they appear as biologically different in that kind of representation, that chart that I showed you before. So this kind of conceptual, foundational division between the mestizo and the indígena is reproduced again and again in this kind of practice in Mexico. Or in Colombia, you find a, a, a similar kind of division between what were called by some geneticists Caucasian mestizos, by which they meant people from the Andean highlands, uh, mainly, and Afro-Colombians. Now, Afro-Colombians, you know, even in the Pacific coastal region of Colombia, which is a very sort of black area, are all mixed, biologically mixed, of course. Um, nevertheless, in the, in the way they're presented in the, in the, in the genetic data, you are, you're either mestizo or you're Afro-descent. And those two things are separate. Okay, so fixing your foundational categories. That's one main way in which ideas of race are sort of strongly reproduced through this genomic practice. Another way in which things are fixed is through the kind of precision of the measurements. Now, it's not unusual to measure things in... Uh, or it hasn't been unusual to measure things like uh, race in uh, Latin America and everywhere else through anthropometrics. So, uh, um, detailed measurements of skin colour, of eye colour, of nose shape, all these kinds of things going on in Latin America in the 1920s, etc. So that, you know, the measurement itself is not new. What's new is the, the very precise ways in which genomics can pin things down for the individual and relate them back to these ancestral populations. And they can do this using multiple different kinds of markers. So you can trace your your overall ancestry, all the ancestry you've inherited from all your myriad ancestors, which is in what's called the autosomal DNA, which is the kind of nucleus of your, in, in each of your cells. You have a nucleus, uh, which is a mixture of DNA from all your, your ancestors. 
but you could, which is one of the main ways of measuring ancestry. But you can also look at what's called the mitochondrial DNA, which is a type of tiny, tiny portion of DNA that you inherit only through the maternal line. So it gives you ideas about your maternal ancestry. And you can also look at the Y chromosome, for men, look at the Y chromosome, which you inherit only from your father. So you can trace unilineal uh, maternal ancestry and unilineal paternal ancestry as well. So you have three different ways in which you can measure people's ancestries. So you can, you know, in a way you're sort of triangulating people. You can square the other and say, right, from this point of view you have this much ancestry. From here you have that much ancestry. And altogether you have this much ancestry. And you can, you can pin it down in terms of percentages for each individual. So it's, I think it's useful to think about precision as what Norman Wise calls an agent of unity. You know, he sees in precision and measuring as uh, a, a mechanism of governance in which you create some kind of unity within a particular, usually a nation, but it can be within some other social space. Um, and you see this going on in the way that the geneticists tabulate uh, populations, regions, nations, so you can produce these kinds of like that... that um, that figure I showed you of Mexico that showed the different states with their different degrees of mixture. So you can say, okay, this, but you know, uh, Sonora is whiter than Oaxaca or something like that. Oaxaca has more indigenous ancestry than Sonora. Um, and you can tabulate these populations or nations um, in relation to each other in terms of these very precise uh, proportions. So there's a way then in which the, the precision that is given by genomics fixes people in very particular places. Another way in which fixity occurs, I think, is through the very impersonal nature of these measurements. Right? We're not talking, I mean, how did you know whether someone was you know, black or negro or mulato or mestizo or indígena? Uh, usually, you know, without using these kinds of genetic data. Well, you judge it by their appearance. You might have notions about blood and their, their parentage, whether, you know, if you knew who their parents were, that might give you some ideas. You might judge it from their kind of social location, their class status, or where they come from. You might make you all kinds of different social cues to say, oh, so this person's a black person, or a white person, or uh, a mestizo person, or whatever. Now, however, genomics can give you much more... It doesn't say, oh, well, you're you know, half black or half indigenous. It doesn't use a kinship calculus where things are done in, in halves and quarters and eighths and sixteenths. Uh, that follow a kind of genealogical grid, it does it in terms of this molecular metrification. You're 33.3% indigenous, or you're 19% uh, European, or whatever. Uh, it can reveal invisible ancestry, things that you had no idea about. If you find in your mitochondrial DNA that you have indigenous, you know, 50% indigenous ancestry, that will not show on your body, because your mitochondrial DNA doesn't influence your phenotype. So that's the kind of hidden ancestry that can't be seen and couldn't be guessed at through knowing your personal genealogy because it probably goes back, you know, several hundred years. And the same with the Y chromosome DNA. That, those things don't influence the way you look and you might not know them. And most people don't know their genealogies past a couple of generations. So you have a whole bunch of new ways in which you're being identified and, uh, and racialized. <coughs> and this creates... I think one can argue it creates a sense of identification in what uh, Benedict Anderson calls homogeneous empty time, the time of the nation. So you as a white person in Brazil might discover that you have mitochondrial DNA uh, of indigenous origin. 
So that links you with loads of other white people in Brazil who also have mitochondrial DNA ancestry and mestizos who have the same thing and so on and so forth. It links you in this kind of very impersonal, abstract, invisible way with lots of other people in the nation. You're all mixed biologically, no matter what you look like or what you, who you think your parents are. Okay, so overall, I think that this kind of genomics creates these grids of intelligibility which fixes people and measures them and pins them down in very particular ways. In some senses, one could say it's old wine in new bottles here. You know, the old categories of race are simply being reproduced in quite familiar sorts of ways. Amerindian, uh, European, African ancestry, these are very kind of familiar ways of thinking about Las tres razas, as they would be called, in uh, la raza negra, la raza indígena, la, la raza blanca, and so on, in, in Latin America. But they are, there are some changes that have already been introduced, even in the process of, fix, of fixing. You know, the precision of, that, of the diversity and the way the population is broken up into these tiny fragments. Uh, each population is different. Each state of Mexico is different. Each uh, 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 pueblo of Mexico can be slightly different from the one next door. Um, the way that ancestries are located in geographic space. So, you know, they're always related back to these three foundational categories, African, European, indigenous, which are rooted in space. And individual communities are rooted in space. The Zapotec community is a kind of pure, is purified and rooted to its particular location. And the way that um, individual ancestry becomes highly abstract and impersonal. And finally, the way that very remote and selective connections can be, t can be drawn. The mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome DNA you know, give you ideas about ancestors that you, had, you didn't even know existed. Some indigenous woman three, four hundred years ago who's your ancestor, which you, nobody ever knew about. All these multiplications, though, are always organized by these foundational categories. They're always brought back to these three basic ideas of indigenous black and, uh, and, and white. So here, for example, is the logo of um, something called La Expedición Humana in Colombia, which is a big sort of uh, biological uh, medical expedition that, went, that sampled lots of uh, indigenous and black communities in Colombia. And this was their logo, which still sits outside the Institute of Genetics in the Javeriana in, in Bogotá which is you know, a very clear um, representation of the nation and its ancestry in, in racialized terms. Okay, but I think, from what I've been saying, that you can probably also begin to see how the very same technologies that pin things down, that locate people in these grids of intelligibility, also create a certain kind of uncertainty and multiplicity and movement and modulation at the same time. So one of the first ways in which I think this, this happens, this is the unfixing of race that's going on simultaneously, is by what Deleuze calls an unlimited finity. Unlimited finity is what he calls a finite number of components which yield a practically unlimited diversity of combinations. So it's limited in the sense that there are a finite number of things, but you can combine these things in endless, endless ways. And one of the, the two sort of uh, prototypical examples he uses of that are DNA, where you know, you've got a limited number of bases on your DNA chain, but there's like 10 million, well, 10 million points of difference. There's 30 billion bases altogether. So you can think of an unlimited number of combinations there, virtually. And the other thing that he mentions is, of course, software and digital sort of computing techniques, which produce the same kind of unlimited finity. 
So what we have, as, as well as fixing, we have multiplication. You have multiple markers. How do you know how much indigenous ancestry somebody has? Well, you use very particular sets of markers. You don't measure their entire genome. You, you use 15, 16,000, 1,500 specific markers. Now, if you use a different set of markers, you'll get a different result. And people do use different sets of markers because they generate different kinds of markers for different tasks they want to perform. You always take a specific sample. You say, okay, I'm, I'm going to test the population of, um, of Sonora in, in northern Mexico. But what do you do? You go to a particular place and you sample 15 people. So if you go to somewhere else in Sonora and sample another 15 people, you'll get a slightly different result every time. You also have multiple ancestries, as I said before. You've got the maternal ancestry, you've got the paternal ancestry, and then you've got the biparental ancestry. Each of those things will give totally different results. So on the maternal side, you see a lot of indigenous ancestry in Latin American people. On the paternal side, you see a lot of European ancestry. And in the middle, you see a kind of mixture of everything. So you've got this sort of constant, you know, well, what am I then? You know, I'm, I'm sort of lots of different things at the same time. So this is why Sergio Pena, who's a Brazilian geneticist who's been very uh, vocally anti-race and saying that you know, race doesn't exist and shouldn't exist, shouldn't be used in social policy and doesn't exist biologically, says you have to think about Brazil as 190 million different individuals. There's no way of categorizing them and saying, okay, well, here we have the pardos and here we have the, the pretos, here we have the, you know, the northeast or something, although he uses those regional classifications himself. Uh, you have to think about Brazil as 190 million different people. So there's a kind of very strong process of individuation. Every single person is different. You know, far from being classifiable into a kind of a race or you know, blacks or whites or something, everyone's different. So again, although you have the familiar categories, those foundational organizing categories of uh, indigenous, African and European, you also have multiple categories. Well, these, those categories multiply themselves. So here's an example from a paper in Forensic Science International. So this is a paper that was produced for forensic purposes to improve forensic identification in Colombia. And again, I won't go into the technicalities, but the idea is uh, to try and uh, produce a kind of reference population. What does the Colombian population look like? And then we can use that information in order to make very reliable identifications of you know, a body part to a family relative or whatever. But the way they did, the way they did it was say, well, I'm not going to talk about the Colombian population as a whole. We have to look at Colombia regionally. And those regions, for people who know Colombia, were strongly racialized. So the North Colombian Pacific is Afri African descendant. The Andean region and these regions here as well, the, um, the Llanos, as they call them here, are mestizo. Then the southwest Andean region here is, has an important Amerindian component. And then along the Caribbean coast here, you have African descent populations again. So again, very clearly racialized, regionalized picture of Colombia, which is totally familiar to anybody who knows Colombia, although one might want to quibble about some of the boundaries, which indeed people do. So somebody else comes along and says, well, that map doesn't look right to me. I've got a bigger sample. I'm going to use different markers. And here we have a different map altogether. Well, not altogether, but... The Andes is now broken down into three categories. The Caribbean coastal region is broken down into two, and so on. So again, you can see, well, if you went and had used different samples and an even bigger set of markers, you'd end up with a different map with even more categories. So you can see how that's a kind of, kind of continuous process. Why would that ever end? You could end up with you know, ever greater subdivisions of the map. 
Okay, so that's one way, is that kind of endless multiplication, that, 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 that unlimited um, diversity, unlimited finity. Okay, the second way in which uncertainty occurs and movement and uh, destabilization of race occurs is through the connections between disease and ancestry. So one of the, as I said before, at the beginning, one of the key reasons of doing this entire enterprise of measuring everything, ancestry and all the rest of it, is to do with medicine, is, is ultimately to try and locate genetic variants specifically related to these kinds of problems, which are very, very big, especially in Mexico. Obesity has a, uh, Mexico has the highest rate of childhood obesity in the world now, greater even than the USA. Um, and uh, consequently also high rates of diabetes and heart disease and so on. So one of the things that emerges out of that is a kind of, um, okay, well, is there a relationship between predisposition to certain kinds of diseases and the racialized ancestry of a person? The more Amerindian ancestry somebody has, from a genomic point of view, does that correlate to higher rates of diabetes or higher rates of heart disease? You know, that's an interest that, that, uh, that they're pursuing very, um, very thoroughly in Mexico, in in Brazil, all over, the, all over Latin America, all over the world. And there is a tendency to, you know, there is some evidence that uh, they say that that is true. The more Amerindian ancestry you have, the greater your chance of getting diabetes. But when it comes to kind of addressing the public, you know, what is the government now going to say about diabetes? Is he going to say, listen, mate, if you've got Amerindian ancestry, you know, you, you're in trouble. And there's nothing I can do about that. No, they don't say that. They say... They say, healthy diet and exercise from a young age are the basis for the prevention of diabetes. It's all about social lifestyle, right? Eat healthily, take exercise. But they also say, no heredes la diabetes. Don't inherit diabetes. Now, what do they mean by that? Because inherit can mean a lot of things. You can inherit property from your parents. You can also inherit your genes. So are they talking about don't inherit the bad habits of your parents, maybe drinking loads of Coca-Cola or something? Or are they saying, you know, don't avoid or counteract the genetic inheritance you've been given by eating healthily and, um, and taking exercise. You know, it's very ambiguous. You're not quite sure what they're saying. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about those connections. Another example comes from Brazil, where in 2006 they instituted a national uh, policy for the, um, the health of the black population, which was a policy that addressed... Um, issues to do with biology and genetics, but mainly addressed issues to do with racism, institutional racism in the medical profession, institutional racism in the delivery of services, these kinds of things, so, so you know, social issues around racism. But they also said, well, there are certain kinds of diseases that black people are more predisposed to, therefore we have to kind of address those issues as well. But again, it was all kind of very uncertain. So you find there's lots of PR, lots of... Um, public address uh, around the, the specific issue of sickle cell anemia, which is a genetic disease. It's an inherited in a Mendelian fashion in quite a sort of straightforward way. Was it a doenza genegros or not? Was it a, a black disease or not? So, you know, some people said it was. I and mean, you've got these kinds of representations here where everybody's black. On the other hand, you also have ones where, you know, it's not nearly as clear. I love a person who has sickle cell anemia, that says so. That's not, not saying I've got it, but it probably means I'm a relative of a person who's got it. And since it's in, genetically inherited, then, 
you know, that's much less clear. There's only one person who might be said, okay, that's obviously an Afro-Brazilian guy. The others, mm, not, so, not so obvious. Or here's another example, clearly sort of racialized here. Here, completely different. All about sickle cell anemia. Because you can be a carrier of sickle cell anemia, and even like this child, it says here, though you probably can't read it, this child is actually has sickle cell anemia, but you know, it doesn't look very black by Brazilian standards. So a lot of uncertainty there about, well, what's the connection between genetics and disease then in the end? We don't really know. It's not pinning you down. It's saying, well, it might be this or it might be that. You know, make sure you, 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 know, you eat well uh, and you'll be safer. Okay, um, a third way in which unfixing occurs is through um, this process of abstraction and impersonal, impersonal nature of saying you are... 28% uh, Amerindian, or you have uh, Amerindian markers in your mitochondrial DNA, which came from some indigenous woman uh, 200 years ago. So my, my argument at the beginning was that abstraction, that impersonality sort of <coughs> fixes you, it boxes you in, you know, you can't get away from those measurements and those, those connections in some way. But what's interesting is that people obviously don't experience that as being pinned down. When you tell them that kind of information, you are 28% or you have a mitochondrial DNA from an indigenous woman 200 years ago, they don't experience that as being fixed in some way. On the contrary, they seem to experience that as being destabilizing. What do I do with that information? What does it mean? How do I interpret that? I don't know what to do with it. So abstraction, in some one sense, sort of fixes you in a statistical way, but on the other hand, it kind of unmoors you from your foundation because you don't really know how to interpret that information or what to do with it. So what you find is that people domesticate that abstraction, and they do it by using kinship terminology. <clears throat> so whereas the geneticists talk about mitochondrial DNA and maternal lineages, and, you know, indigenous markers in the mitochondrial DNA and the Y chromosome DNA and so forth. They will, you know, that's the kind of data that they're actually dealing with. They will also translate that data, even in a technical paper, in, the first, like in this kind of more mm, um, uh, public-friendly, if you like, language. The first Brazilians were born ma mainly from the union between European males and Amerindian or African females. Right? That's why you have high levels of indigenous markers in the mitochondrial DNA because a lot of the, this is the, the, the classic story of Latin America, where European men came and had sex with Amerindian and especially in Brazil, African females. Then that gets translated down by someone, uh, Emilio Dunis, in, in a kind of popular book, which he wrote, Why Are We Like This? What Happened in Colombia? Analysis of Mestizaje. Simply, uh, Amerindian mothers and European fathers. So it's simplified down into this notion of mothers and fathers, familiar kinship terms. We're back to a kind of genealogical calculus that everybody can understand. Um, or as that, his research was reported in the press, el 85.5% de las madres colombianas tienen origen indígena. So well, that's a, a slight misrepresentation of the data, but you know, it's this idea about mothers and fathers is being used rather than uh, percentages of ancestry and so on. So people are re-domesticating what's going on. Or Sergio Pena, in that um, publication that I mentioned at the beginning, Retrato Molecular do Brasil, which is a kind of popular science magazine article that presented some of the technical data in more friendly terms, 
right at the end, he reproduces this well-known painting, painting well-known in Brazil anyway, The Redemption of Ham, which is painted in 1895 um, at a time when the notion of mixture and the notion of whitening was being purveyed as a kind of basis of the national identity of Brazil. Whitening, at this time, there was massive amounts of European immigration coming into Brazil, um, which was supposedly whitening the population. So the way this is interpreted is usually that this is a a black grandmother. This is her daughter, who's Mulata. So somehow she's managed to produce a Mulata daughter. She's then married, or at least had a child, with this guy who's you know, is supposed to be a European immigrant and they have a child who is pretty much white and she's giving thanks to God because she's got a nice white grandson uh, and this is the redemption of Ham. I don't know how people know the curse of Ham is, a, you know, a story, a quasi-biblical story that uh, black people uh, were black because they had been cursed by Noah or Noah cursed Canaan, father of Ham, and Ham was the father of all the black people in the world who bore the curse of <coughs> the original curse, uh, which is why they were so unfortunate, blah, 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 etc. So this was the redemption of Ham. So again, anyway, the point of this, what I'm trying to get at, is that Sergio Pena produces this as a kind of easy way of grasping these impersonal abstractions about uh, haplogroups groups and haplotypes and mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosomes and so on, you know, this is what it's really about. It's a way of domesticating that abstraction. Okay, so what's the balance then? You know, in some senses, genomics seems to fix race. In other ways, it seems to unfix and destabilize race. What are we to make of that? Um, I mean, I don't think you can sort of say, well, it's more one than the other. You know, these processes are going on at the same time. What I think is important is that we have here, in genomics, new idioms for talking about unity and diversity, sameness and difference, sharing things with people and distance from people. You know, you can now talk about these kinds of things in different kinds of ways, which are much more biological. And I think this is of particular interest in Latin America, because as you probably know, race in Latin America has often been seen um, by academics as being a kind of particularly culturalized definition. So what's the difference between a mestizo and an indígena? Well, in someone like Mexico, not much physically. They look pretty similar, a lot of them. So the difference is about language, about where you live, about um, um, uh, how you dress and so forth. That's a sort of typical social science understanding of race in Latin America that is more about culture than it is about biology or even phenotype. Um, Now, I think, actually, uh, biology is important in Latin America and people are extremely concerned with things like blood and phenotype, you know, what people look like, how did the baby come out, como salió el bebé, these sorts of things are of a lot of interest in Latin America. So, you know, biology isn't... uh, Race isn't just about culture in Latin America, it's also about biology... And I think the genomics is giving people, some people, in some contexts, new ways of thinking about that biology and thinking about connections and shared uh, identity as being grounded in, in biology in some way. Through the sorts of things that I've been talking about. So you can locate people, you can locate a person in relation to these ancestral populations and say, okay, well, that's a genetic connection which can't be gainsaid. You can specify people's precise ancestral proportions, or relatively precise. 
you can make links to these indigenous mothers and European fathers in ways that were previously invisible or inconceivable. And the social categories, like black or sapote, or uh, sometimes regional categories, are given these genetic meanings. So there's a new language available here. Now, what are the kind of some of the implications of this when it comes to you know, broader issues of politics and citizenship? Well, in post-1990 multiculturalist Latin America, the emphasis has clearly been on the minorities, right? What's all that multiculturalist reform about? It's about indigenous minorities and Afro-descendant minorities, land rights, cultural rights, educational rights, and so forth. Now, in some ways, you could say genomics reinforces that because it separates out the indigenous people and says, here, here are the indigenous people and that this is their genetic profile. Here are the Afro-Colombians and this is their genetic profile. So in some sense, it kind of reinforces the idea that within the nation you have these sort of separate populations with their separate biologies and their separate cultures. But overall, I would argue that what, um, what genomics does is to focus on the mestiza majority. What genomics does above all is to say that these countries are mestiza. We are all mestiza. Yeah, we have these indigenous and Afro-descendant minorities here and there, but what we are above all is we are mixed. We are all mixed. And they do that for different reasons um, and in different ways. One is the idea that you know, these kinds of statements that they're making don't take place just within a national sphere. Right? They're taking place on an international global genomic science stage in conferences, in publications, and so on. These people are writing mainly in English in international so, uh, um, medical science and life sciences journals. Now, what they're doing is presenting the mestizo as a kind of genomic object of interest. You can do things with mestizo populations that are of interest to medical genomics. Now, you could be using African Americans and many, um, many um, geneticists in, Latin, in, in North America do use African Americans as a kind of as a, a, a genomic object of interest. But Latin American geneticists say, well, you know, here we've got all these different mixed populations with very diverse kinds of mixture. You know, we can use them, and we must use them, and we have to get these people onto the global genetic map and map, and map their, 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 their genetic diversity. So that's one of the reasons why they want to emphasize the mestizoness of their populations and say that's what we are, that's what we can represent to the world, the genomic world, is we are all mestizos. The other thing is that there's a kind of quite strong sense of post-colonial um, vindication. And this comes out very strongly in the Mexican case, in Inmejen, which was a national, it was the only place that had a national institute of genomic medicine, which had been specially created uh, in 2004, I think it was. Um, and it was created, a lot of the kind of lobbying around its creation was used this notion of genomic sovereignty. That Mex the Mexican, the Mexican state, had to have control over its genomic and genetic resources. Um, but that only made sense if you thought that Mexico had something sort of different and special. You know, if its, if its genomic resources were exactly the same as the people next door, Guatemala or uh, southern USA or something, then well, you know, what's the point? You're not protecting anything valuable. So you had to kind of make the case that somehow Mexico had something different, unusual, you know, interesting that had to be protected. So the kind of story was 
that Mexican, Mexicans are different. Genetically, they're a bit different. Therefore, uh, the kinds of medicines and treatments and research that's being concocted by the big pharmaceutical companies in North America or in Switzerland and so on, you know, that's not for us. We need to have our own kind of genetic medicine because we're a bit different from everybody else. That was the kind of story that was being purveyed. And although genetically it doesn't really make uh, that much sense, and a lot of geneticists were very uncomfortable with saying that Mexico was somehow different from Guatemala or something like that, it nevertheless worked as a basis to set up in Mexen and uh, start off this whole project of uh, mapping the, the so-called Mexican genome as if there were something called the Mexican genome. Um, so this is another reason why the mestizo comes across as the kind of centre of the nation in this, in, this kind of, um, in this kind of discourse. In Brazil, you've got a slightly different story that centred the mestizo majority. <clears throat> as I'm sure you know, Brazil is you know, a place where affirmative action uh, programmes have been put in place for higher education and health policy. Uh, as you, I'm sure you know, there's also been a huge amount of debate there about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether it's, in, whether it's constitutionally legitimate and whether it's sort of, you know, socially a good idea or morally even a good idea. But what was, it, what was interesting here was the way that genomic data were used to contest these policies, especially in higher education, less so in health. So Sergio Pena, as I, who I've mentioned several times, was, um, is a geneticist who has made a very public anti-race stance. Race does not exist. Race belongs to the past as a concept. It has no biological validity. Um, uh, therefore, okay, here's the jump from genomics to social policy. Therefore, you should not use race as a category in social policy. Because it has no biological validity, you shouldn't use it as a basis for letting people into university or setting up... Um, special health policies. So that's quite a jump, right? Because, you know, the people who are contesting his argument say, well, it's got nothing to do with genetics. It doesn't matter what your genetics are. What matters is whether somebody thinks you're black or indigenous and discriminates against you for some reason. Uh, you know, genetics is irrelevant. Nevertheless, genomic data were used by people who were contesting these kinds of affirmative action policies um, to, as, as one element in their argument about why they shouldn't exist. So Sergio Pena testified in the Supreme Court hearings in 2010 about the, the constitutionality of these kinds of, uh, of policies. And his evidence was duly ignored by the, the court, which said, well, yeah, they are constitutional, and we're going to uh, ratify them. So one uh, very widely used anecdote, anecdotal piece of information was an ancestry test that was done on the, the Samba singer Neguinho da, da Beja Flor by BBC Brazil. They did this experiment. Uh, they took nine celebrities, more or less Afro-Brazilian, and did ancestry testing on them. And um, Neguinho, who's the kind of icon of black culture in, in Brazil, was shocked to find that his 67% of his genes are European and only 31% are African. This guy, Frey David here, who was a kind of big... Uh, Lobbyer of uh, affirmative action in, in education found you know similar things, and you know, Neguinho says, "Well, I, you know, I don't give, I don't, I don't care. You know, it doesn't matter what my genes say. I know I'm black, and everyone thinks I'm black, and that's all that matters." <clears throat> but that piece of information was used widely used by anti-quota people to say, "Listen, black people don't really exist in Brazil. 
right? There's no such category as black. Even black people are actually more or less white. Therefore, it makes no sense to have affirmative action policies. So in the, or Global, which was a, you know, um, a mainstream newspaper that was also very against affirmative action policies, now it is science that proves the non-existence of the Afro-Brazilian. Genetic ancestry show it is impossible to define the Brazilian as white, black, Indian, or whatever. You know, we are all mixed, in other words. And therefore, you shouldn't have policies that divide us up in any way. So affirmative action was widely seen as un-Brazilian. You know? It was creating divisions where supposedly none existed before. Or it was creating divisions that made it look like the, more like the USA. You know, worse still. Very un-Brazilian. So what's happening here is a very strong recentering of the mestizo, whereas multiculturalist legis legislation has for 30 years kind of ignored the mestizo in some way and centered on the, the indigenous minorities, this kind of genetic research recenters the mestizo. This is what we really are genetically, historically, so on. It historicizes the mestizo by linking the, the mestizo to these European fathers and indigenous and African mothers which is, you know, privileging these very early colonial encounters between, you know, most of the mixture that took place in someone like Brazil or Colombia was not between Europeans and Africans, it was between mestizos, right? After the first two or three generations, you weren't talking about that many Europeans and so on. The main population was mestizo. But these kinds of narratives about <clears throat> mitochondrial and Y-DNA talk about European fathers and African and indigenous mothers, so it's privileging that kind of initial moment of, of mixture, and um, recentering that whole note, that whole narrative of mestizaje. And it's also, I think, in some, some cases, not just recentering the mestizo and historicizing it, but also whitening the mestizo. So in Colombia, you get this weird category, the Caucasian mestizo. Now, it's not enough to talk about just the mestizo, there has to be Caucasian, you know, a kind of white version of the mestizo. Or in Brazil, Pena's more, most recent research said, well, yes, I'm looking at everything overall. Now we do the, you know, the sums in a slightly different way. Actually, all Brazilians are fairly similar in the sense that all of them, in all the different regions, even the northeast, you know, Bahia, Salvador, places like this, everyone is 60 to 78% white. So, you know, we're all actually pretty European. And then, you know, you've got lots of reactions to this in the press. Um, the old global did a big thing on it and talked about the the sort of um, the Brazipians, like the, not the Europeans, but the Brazipians. And this guy says, uh, you know, what do you mean Mama Africa? It's got nothing, to, it's, it's actually Mama, U, uh, Mama Europe. Now, that's where we all come from. So you get this kind of popularization of these, of these ideas of whitening. So to conclude then, um, what we have is a new biologizing language of difference. That's the difference that genomics is making is not so much simply to reproduce race or to completely transform and get rid of race, but to produce a new, more biological language of talking about the presence or the absence of race. What we also see is that genetics has this very uneven traction. You know, it doesn't just move in one way or another. Um, so in Brazil, uh, you know, there was a lot of use of genetic data to contest policies in higher education. But in the end, the state said, well, that's irrelevant. We're not interested in genetic data. It's not a genetic question. It's a social question. Therefore, we will have um, genetic, um, affirmative action policies in education. But in health, with uh, sickle cell anemia, 
genetics is relevant there because actually it's a genetically transmitted disease so it matters therefore we will screen everybody not just the black population or the brown population everybody is screened universally at birth for sickle cell anemia in Brazil <coughs> so you know it depends it's very contextual the way the impact that genetics has the main thing I think in terms of sort of politics and, and, and citizenship is this challenge to multiculturalism and the recentering of the mestizo uh, but again the kind of actual impact of that on citizenship uh, is very uneven. So in Brazil, you have this whole debate. But in Colombia, you know, nobody really used genetic data to talk about. I mean, in Colombia has different kinds of affirmative action programs for Afro-descendants and indigenous people. But nobody really used genetic data to kind of contest those or to support them or anything. It just didn't enter in in the same way as it did in Brazil through Sergio Pena and, and other people. So, you know, it's very unpredictable the way that um, genetics will have, ha have an impact. But uh, the, the key thing, I think, um, is this recentering of the, of the mestizo. That, for me, is the kind of take-home message from this, uh, this project. Thank you. <laughs>